Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. As always, we're your hosts, Robin Mullins, Nick Bridges, and Keely McCabot. On July 22, 1983, 24-year-old Toronto art student Peter Grayson entered the Library and Archives Canada, where he requested to examine the Constitution. He was sent to the archivist James Whalen, who asked Grayson which version of the Constitution he wanted to view, the rain-stained original or the second version that had been signed indoors. Grayson asked for the second version under the pretense of examining its design and calligraphy. The archivist manning the front desk that day, Larry McNally, noted that Grayson was the first visitor to request to view the Constitution. Whalen retrieved the document from storage, and almost immediately, Grayson reached into his coat and pulled out a bottle of Elmer's glue filled with red paint. He splashed the paint all over the document. Whalen pulled Grayson away to prevent further damage, and later noted that Grayson did not resist. Grayson claims that his actions were in protest of Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau's decision to permit U.S. ballistic missile testing over Canadian airspace. He said that to allow this testing was a violation or a stain on the Constitution, and that his act of staining the Constitution with paint was thus symbolic of this. He stood by this reasoning in court a year later. LAC senior conservator Jeffrey Morrow was immediately called to try and do damage control. He was able to suck away the excess paint using a small vacuum, but the stain still remained. On October 9, 1984, Grayson was sentenced to 89 days in prison, which he served on weekends, as well as 100 hours of community service and two years probation. The sentence was considered light since Grayson was a first-time offender and, quote, an excellent student, according to the judge. Grayson was also banned from LAC. Today, we're noticing the history and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, I mean, that's a pretty big thing we're going to be tackling today. It's kind of artistic terrorism. Terrorism? Constitutional <laughs> vandalism or justified protest, Robin? Uh, I'm sure you have an opinion that you're going to foist on me. <laughs> justified protest. <laughs> we'll get there, we'll get there. But first, before we uh, jump in and wade into the bigger issues that I'm sure are at play here, why don't we give some background to this topic? The 1982 Constitution Act of Canada is a key document that outlines the country's system of government and civil rights through a series of codified acts, traditions, and conventions. However, it is quite recent given that Canada was founded in 1867. At the time, the power to amend Canada's constitution was left with the British Parliament through the British North America Act. Canada was required to petition Britain to change the document in any way. Depending on your perspective, as of 1982, Canada is officially a country. But yeah. before that, is it really an independent state if your judiciary is tied to uh, colonial power? Well, we were also told in, uh, was it the Boer War? We were told we had to go to war. Yeah, Boer War and World War One. Canada mm -hmm. was ordered to go to war because we're a dominion. Exactly. So we were, I mean, were we a country? No. Weren't we a country? No. We were still being told that we had to go fight wars overseas. Mm-hmm. So Canada is a country that's built on sort of the Durham path to independence. Uh, so a lot of people really don't draw the, I guess, start date of Canadian 
independence till the statutes of Westminster in 1931. Um, this was when the queen was made the crown in Canada. She officially became the Canadian monarch instead of just one person. Now, and as of the statute of Westminster, she became one person who wears sort of a series of different hats is usually the analogy used. So she'll, she'll be the queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. She'll be the queen of Canada. She'll be the queen of the Cayman Islands. She'll be the queen of Australia, New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So our constitution is really built on this model where um, bit by bit, the country has settlers put onto it. It gets its own political institutions. These institutions are devolved to the settlers and then they start getting every bit of government. So in 1982, this act is the culmination of that path, as it's called, with the devolution of the judiciary coming to Canada. It's like getting our training wheels taken off finally, right? It's, it's creating a country with training wheels so that at every stage, as you, you know, become more and more stable, you take off another wheel and another little thing that's keeping it all together until you're really able to ride down the street and you don't even realize that, you know, your mom, the queen, isn't holding on to the back of the bike anymore until you turn around and you notice, hey, I can do this on my own. She's doing an Instagram story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's so proud. <laughs> On April 17, 1982, when after much work by Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, several successive federal governments and each Canadian province, save Quebec, which refused to sign, the repatriation of the Constitution was completed. At a ceremony outside Parliament Hill, both Queen Elizabeth II and Prime Minister Trudeau signed the document. Britain renounced any further responsibility for Canada, and Canada gained the ability to amend the Constitution. Additionally, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was adopted at this time to formally safeguard the rights of all Canadians. So not only did Quebec not sign the Constitution, they also did not sign the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So something that was unusual about this was two different copies of the same document were signed. But thank goodness in the yeah, end. There's got a backup plan. <laughs> I know, someone had some good foresight. <laughs> it was revealed to the Queen in a dream. <laughs> no. <laughs> The Queen would normally only sign one, but she signed a second indoors after the public outdoor ceremony. So there was light rain on the day. The one that was signed outside actually has been stained with raindrops, while the other one was kept safe and dry for a little while. So not only did they really have a good amount of foresight in having two copies theirs, because one of them had rain on it, but then also with this other event that happened years later. It's just it's just great. I'm so happy that they had both signed. Good planning. <laughs> there should always be two, maybe three. Three is probably a safer number because then if one of them burns or something, something happens to the third one, you still have the other two. No, Backups are good. Everything happens in threes, though. You're dooming it. You're dooming the document. So then three. So then four. Okay. Four is the right number. But if comedy happens in threes, then all those documents will be super funny. Oh, true. I just, we need a lot of copies, is my point. Let's have as many as possible. So an interesting note is that while Quebec never agreed to the Constitution, all of the Canadian signatures on it are Québécois. That of Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, then-Justice Minister Jean Chrétien, and Registrar General André Houlette. I think it really speaks to the uh, divisions in Canadian society at the time, especially when the separatist movement was still very strong. I know we don't think about it with the same sort of gusto that it had back 
from, I guess, the Quiet Revolution to 95, the provincial government was so, so dead set against it. But Quebec and Quebecois people had played such a role in the wider federal government and the federal life of Canada as a state. Well, that's what I was going to say is like thinking about where you kind of draw the line with your individuality when you're in politics. Like if you're in a federal role, obviously you're going to perform the duties of that federal role. But I wonder if any of them kind of felt weird about it. Not to say that all Quebecois people have the same opinions of the province, but I wonder if that played a role. It certainly could have. I think it's telling, though, that Jean Chrétien went on to become the Prime Minister of Canada, that he was probably comfortable signing it, since he was comfortable being Prime Minister and not advocating for there being separatism. But it is still certainly an interesting thing to consider, because people are elected to the federal government who are from the separatist party. So it's the Bloc Québécois have seats, or often have seats, usually have seats. So it, it is still something that's certainly on the federal agenda. It's it's being thought of, it's being voted on. There are people who feel very strongly about it. So it's possible that some of those people or maybe felt some kind of hesitation. So why don't we get back to the incident at hand? A 24-year-old with an Elmer's glue bottle full of red paint A constitution and a point to make. And what a point it was. So as we mentioned previously, conservator Jeffrey Morrow was able to remove the excess paint at the time of vandalism, likely preventing more significant damage. However, the stain itself remains on the document despite several attempts to restore it. And we've actually had a chance to see this in person. Mm -hmm. Not that long ago, No History was able to go for a private tour at the Library and Archives Canada Preservation site. These are open to the public now, too, nearly. That's a... true. And on this tour, we were able to see a number of different pieces of art that are in their collection. And among their holdings, we were also able to see the paint-stained version of the Constitution and hear the story firsthand, not from one of the people who was present at the time, but from an employee who's been well-versed in the situation and the incident itself. So if you are interested, they might not necessarily be able to show you the Constitution itself, especially given this incident that we're now talking about. But you can log on to their website at Library and Archives Canada and sign up for a tour of your own if you're interested in seeing some of their other collections that they have. One thing when we saw it that was really not shocking, but just very apparent was like how big this stain is and how bright red it is and... You can still read what's underneath of it, but it's just like this huge red splotch across. Tests were done at the time, though, to try and save it, and they recreated the stain on the same kind of paper, and they were trying to safely remove it, but all of those tests were unsuccessful. The paint was lead-based, so a lot of techniques that they would usually use wouldn't work because it wasn't made with organic compounds. Seems like this 24-year-old really knew what he was doing. He was an excellent student, so he probably studied and figured all that out. I wonder if he did actually study it or if it's just a happy accident. Among the different works that they were doing to try to figure out how to deal with this vandalism, a poll was taken among archivists asking for suggestions on how to remove the stain. And one person even suggested taking the Constitution to a commercial dry cleaner. That's, that's I think, beautiful. Like, hey, can you take these uh, three, three suits? Here's three Armani suits and the Constitution of the country. Be careful with it. Don't lose it. <laughs> I'm going to be back with the slip. Don't, don't use lemon juice. We tried that. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? 
<laughs> I think it's, it's a great scene. I think they should have done it. <laughs> it would have been incredible. Or at least done it with a different piece of paper, right? Like what they did with the other tests. Take the same type of paper, send it to the drag cleaner, see if it works. Maybe not sending the full constitution on the first try, but, you know, let it go through a couple times. Well, I'm just imagining that somebody had that errand to run and they were like, you know what? I can do this I'm going work time. anyway. <laughs> I can get paid for this. <laughs> Another proposal for how to restore the document came from the Constitution's calligrapher, John Whitehead. He seemed to be in favor with the proposed solution that the stained portion be cut out of the document and replaced with a new version. And he also expressed his willingness to go ahead and do the calligraphy on this replacement piece. I wonder what that would look like. Like, you can do some pretty amazing paper repair, but all I can see in my mind is like a Frankenstein document. And I know it wouldn't be done that way, but that's all I can see. <laughs> it's hard because even if it was able, even if they had chosen to do this, how would that change the life of the document and just the spirit of it, right? Mm-hmm. It's considered a living document. It's, it's what has formed our country. If we cut a piece of it out, that symbolically is like cutting out a piece of the country almost. Not even almost. It, it, that's what it would be considered to be doing, right? So it's very lovely that he made these offers, but I don't think that we could really ever consider them because this document can't be altered. And even if it says the same thing, it would be physically a different document. It would be. And it would hold different meaning. Oh, so interesting. Well, unless I think that idea of erasure, like getting rid of that that incident happened in the first place is almost irresponsible. I'm biased because outside of the fact that it's an, like a very important political and historical document, it's also now an artwork. And maybe that, maybe you don't agree, that, which is fine. But in my mind, I'm like, as an art piece, this is fantastic. <laughs> I think it can be both things. I think the artistic act of protest or vandalism or whatever you personally see it as being a part of the document is very unique. I don't know of any other countries that have their constitutions or their charters of rights and freedoms vandalized and then not like remade or if they even have them like that. So I think that's maybe perhaps that is very uniquely Canadian. Well, they might not agree with your art interpretation, but in the end, senior conservator Jeffrey Morrow and Dominion archivist Dr. Wilfred Smith ultimately decided that the stain was now part of the document's history and it should be kept there rather than removed. So ultimately, this decision was made that this is now part of this document. It is part of its history. It's part of what speaks to our country and we can't we can't cut it out. We can't remove it. There's, if, we, if it's not able to be removed through the normal methods of cleaning, then it's there. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's kind of awesome just because um, it shows how uh, Library and Archives Canada has such an openness and willingness to discuss the life cycle of documents. Not only that, the provenance of documents. And now that this stain is a part of it, Grayson's protest is permanently a part of Canada's history. Yeah, it's, it's more important that we understand the history of the document than trying to preserve it in the pristine condition in which it was originally made, right? Because it's, it's the document itself. It's not what it, it, it's all wrapped up in what it means. You can't just say, oh, well, like this paper just kind of, it, it holds an idea. By putting an idea onto a piece of paper, that paper is imbued with something more powerful. And now the paper itself has to be held highly and regarded in a different way and valued. It has this inherent value in, in inside of it now. So it really does, 
I think speak to, yeah, our, our ability to look at something and respect it, even when it's something that we don't agree with and wish hadn't happened, although it is a pretty cool story. So maybe it's, it's a fun, colorful story, I, I literally think, a colorful story. I think it's a, just a pretty awesome protest in some sense, too. People could be critical of this because it is vandalism, which is what Grayson was charged with. But realistically, how many Canadians would know about Trudeau's decision to allow the missile testing? Like, do people know about that now? Is that in the public memory of what um, happened during Trudeau's reign? And now, because of the document, because of Grayson's efforts, that's been preserved permanently. Mm. Whether or not Prime Minister Trudeau wanted it to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe he didn't. Maybe that was something he was trying to keep really quiet. And now, whether he likes it or not, it, it will always be tied to the Constitution. And I wonder, too, if aside from the missile testing... It can be seen as like a physical sort of like manifestation of displeasure so that perhaps it could be a symbol for different issues in mm-hmm. the future, right? Um, once again, not, I'm not condoning going into LAC and damaging historical documents, but if I step outside of my career <laughs> and um, my personal opinion about like taking care of historical documents and objects, it's really cool. And I think it says a lot and it's important it, it, it's a constant reminder it's a constant symbol of the people and their government and how they need to represent one another but also how they're at loggerheads yeah and how we're we don't always agree and sometimes people will take steps to make their feelings known and make their issues known and it's okay that we're a country that has differences of opinion mm-hmm and again, please no one show up at LAC. Yeah, please don't destroy their documents. <laughs> please don't. We do not condone that. No. But we just think that, yeah, it's it's very, it's a beautiful metaphor for our country, for our country. This was the first time that intentional vandalism of a historical document has taken place in Canada, and the incident caused considerable panic. Archivists were unsure whether or not Grayson had acted alone or whether there might be plans to destroy or vandalize other important documents. So while Grayson had hidden the bottle of red paint in his clothing, a briefcase that he had stored in an LAC locker was found of a bottle of blue paint as well. So it was unclear what his plans were for that paint. Ooh, maybe the Charter of Rights and uh, Freedoms? Maybe. Maybe the second copy of the Constitution. He's going to swoop in for the second one. His blue was like a stand-in to go with the rain stains, like the raindrop stains. You know, rain, water, blue. Throw the blue on there, make it a full set. Symbolism. Nailed it. Yep, definitely. (laughs) At this time, other important items were put into lockdown. So I think that really shows how serious LAC took this and how devoted they are to protecting the documents and the objects in their collection. Absolutely. And police believe that Grayson might have been working with the anti-cruise missile group against cruise testing and that they might have supported him or pose a future threat through similar acts of protest. However, the group stated that Grayson was not associated with them and even noted that while they sympathized with Grayson... Quote, we just don't feel that kind of thing accomplishes anything. Really (laughs) takes the wind out of your sails. (laughs) Poor Grayson. Yeah, he's not getting a lot of backup. No, really none. (laughs) But this meant that new security measures were put into place. Important documents were now under stricter viewing restrictions and often stored and viewed only behind glass cases. And this still continues today. So this changed the way that Canadians can access the documents in our national institution, which are preserved for us, for Canadians, it changed that forever. Pretty significant stuff. 
Yeah, like even it's, it's all the day-to-day details. It's every aspect of how people interact with the archive now. Yeah, it's important to still note that no documents are entirely off limits. It's not like documents are now under lock and key and are never going to be viewed by any Canadians ever again, because that would be violating Library and Archives Canada's core mandate of making things available to the public. But it definitely called into question security and screening measures for determining if researchers can be trusted to view archival documents and how. So it might not be hidden away, locked away so that no one can ever access it, but it might be under special viewing only or under special request or only ever under glass. There's certainly a lot that they now have to consider before allowing people to view these things, which is for the best, I think. But unfortunate because if this hadn't happened, I mean, it was only a matter of time till someone abused the system. That's just how humans work generally. But... It's so interesting to think that if that hadn't happened, we could have gone in and viewed the Constitution, potentially, just like requested to see it and have an archivist stand beside us while we get to actually examine it and like be up close and personal with it. Which, which would be amazing. It would be. Mm-hmm. I would love that. There are so many interesting documents that having that sort of access would just be phenomenal. So right now, uh, have all of us been to Library and Archives Canada? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can talk about what the current security measures are that we go through when we have to go in. Just to, br- to break down the Grayson effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you get in, you have to sign in. So they're keeping track of everybody in the building. Yep, with some really trusty commissioners. They, and they yeah. very much take their job seriously because of this exact incident. They're also lovely people. They are, yes. They'll give you recommendations for where to get lunch, where to get breakfast, maybe even dinner if you're there all day. They are. They're very, they're very sweet. They're lovely people uh, and very helpful. But, I mean, they take their job seriously because of issues and incidents exactly like this one. So you'll sign in and they'll say, are you going to bring anything up? So let's say you want to take photos of a source or jot down some notes. Um, they would give you a big plastic bag that makes a ton of noise. It's very rustly it's yeah. a, and it's massive. <laughs> Hey, sometimes you got to bring a tripod, a camera, a clipboard, because uh, maybe you won't need a clipboard, uh, pencils, erasers, because you can't use pens because they have ink in them. And they will walk around in the consultation room. While you're there with your pencil, they will walk around and you will be inspected to make sure that you are following all the security protocols. And if you are using a mechanical pencil, because, I mean, they are more convenient. I like them. They have better grips on them. I don't like them. Well, then you never get bothered, but they always come up to me and want to know if I'm using a pen or a mechanical pencil. And it's always a mechanical pencil, but be warned, it's a very strict security issue. Bringing your number two pencil. Yeah, for the day, bring in a pencil sharpener. Just, I know you, if you're not like Nick and you don't love it, just, just bear with it. So is it you actually need to have a specific hardness of pencil? No, I'm just joking. Oh, okay. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Is it, excuse me, is that number three? Is, is, that, a is that a drawing pencil? Get out. <laughs> Get out. Who do you think you are? You won't be running years probation. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to say how easy it would be to still bring something in and get it through security. But I, I think you'd be caught really quickly. They have security cameras everywhere. They have lockers where you're supposed to put anything that, that isn't approved for going into the consultation area. I mean... It would be a pretty elaborate Ocean's Eleven type situation if you wanted to destroy something. And, and maybe just don't. 
Yeah, please don't. Because you don't want to spend a year of your weekends in jail. Or longer, because it would probably be longer now. That was in 1983. Things have changed. I think it's safe to say. Things have changed. Things have changed. There's a precedent. Yeah, and people are... Security's tighter than it was back then. That was another interesting thing about it, too, though, thinking of precedent, is that it never happened in Canadian history. So the legal courts didn't even know what to do with it. Just such an interesting little event. But now they do. So there, there is a precedent. So don't go doing anything because they have a precedent and they're only going to make it tougher. I think all those security steps being taken in light of Grayson's act of vandalism or just in general at LAC are a really good indication of the dedication that LAC as an institution has to protecting the documents. And really it's for it's being done on behalf of all Canadians, right? That's the ideal. That's the idea that... And that's pretty serious, right? The historical legacy of a nation, arguably. So, so you want about some of the, um, I guess, government actions that have happened around LAC, especially in maybe the last 10, 20 years. But you can really see in their day-to-day operations that they're trying to fulfill that mandate. But all of that is to say, where do you go, Peter Grayson? Where do you go? Where do you go? Go, 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 However, in the wake of this incident, I mean, we just passed in 2013, it marked the 30-year point, the 30-year anniversary since the Constitution had been stained. And a lot of journalists wanted to cover this because, you know, it's fairly interesting in a history of... not a lot of acts of vandalism against our documents. It was the first one. But Grayson had little interest in discussing his past actions with journalists. So he moved on after serving his sentence. And interestingly, he is now an artist and art museum curator. Really put that passion at work. You could say this was his piece de resistance. (laughs) You can and you should. (laughs) He should. He should have just made that as his comment. All, all I have to say is that was my piece de resistance. So as we already mentioned, we visited the Library and Archives Canada facility in Gatineau, and that's where the Constitution is housed now. Both the rained and the stained versions are stored in their facilities. That's one thing, too, that I thought was really neat, was kind of seeing them with each other. So you have like the version with the raindrops, and you have the version with the paint, and I think with this story, there's a lot of emphasis on the one with the paint, obviously, because it's sensational. It's like the big story. But the rain-worn document sitting next to it's really cool. Like We have more than one. It's the same thing. Does one have more value? I don't know. And they are both stained in a way. They're mm-hmm. both imperfect documents, as anything is as soon as it's been made. It's exposed to air. It's exposed to different elements. And it's with age and wear and tear, just anything, no matter how much we try to preserve it, it's going to change. They also both tell a story. They do, exactly. And do you want to know my fun fact story about the rain-stained one? Go for it, Nick. When the Queen signed the document, Pierre Trudeau signed the document next. Now, the conspiracy theory is that Trudeau sabotage the pen so that only him and the queen will would have signed it so next up jean chrétien gets up trying tries to start putting his name pen's not working he yells out merit and the queen who speaks fluent french starts giggling what a lady what, what a lady and what a guy <laughs> what a couple of characters so we can't 
confirm by any means that this was uh, intentional on the part of the Prime Minister to ruin the pen for the next signatories. But it is true that the pen did not work and a different pen had to be used. Fact. (laughs) Historical fact. Yes, with some color commentary added by Nick. Uh, Not by me, by the people. Out in the ether. Uh, Yes, the people. (laughs) Give them what they want. (laughs) You gotta give the people what they want, a sensational story. (laughs) But why do we need to make up stories when we have stories like this? Stranger than fiction. Exactly. Well, putting aside the rain stain and the story of the pen, maintaining this important part of Canadian history and its legal foundation is really challenging, and significant effort goes into maintaining the Constitution documents. So research has shown that the ink used for the signature on both copies of the document is extremely light-sensitive, and each time the Constitution is displayed, the signatures fade with exposure to light. And as a result, the number of hours that the document can be displayed for is strictly limited. So it doesn't matter what kind of pen it was. So every time that it's exposed to light, it fades a little bit more. And they really have to keep tabs on the exposure that it gets to any kind of light. And that impacts it being put on display. So realistically, even without Grayson, there would probably be a series of, I guess, checks and balances, limits and restrictions on the document um, just for public viewing. And I wonder if they're more knowledgeable or that they picked up on it faster as a result of having to do all these in-depth looks at it and having to do all these tests and, and figure out the integrity of the document. I wonder if maybe that actually brought to light this issue at an earlier point than it may have otherwise been noticed. Potentially, especially because um, the ink stain document and the ink under the red paint is actually better preserved now. Because it's, it's easier to read under that paint. That paint is protecting it from the light. Yeah, it's a seal on top of it. So in a way, Grayson almost helped with the preservation of the Constitution. He changed it, yes, forever, irrevocably. But he also assisted in the preservation of it. You know, nothing lasts forever. So it doesn't matter how diligent conservation is. Eventually, there's kind of like an end date to every object, everything. The ink's not going to be there forever, but I now have this vision in my mind that years and years and years and years from now, it'll just be kind of like a blank page with a red splotch with some writing in it, and people will be like, what was this? So we've we've talked a lot about how the document is a bit harder to access now. It's under um, a, a number of different restrictions, but... In order to fulfill their mandate, Library and Archives Canada also built a special display case for the Constitution. And this display case was used when the Constitution was displayed at the Museum of Human Rights in Winnipeg. And this helps to limit the effects of the harmful light that's happening to the Constitution while preventing further vandalism or theft. So it allows the humidity and oxygen levels inside the case to be carefully monitored and controlled. And it also records how much light the document has been exposed to. So in order to see it, you have to push a button, which lights up the document so you can see it. And then inside, it actually records how many times that button has been pressed so that it can be keeping track of all of the exposure that's happening to the document. And then when it comes back, Library and Archives Canada has to actually assess, okay, how much light has been exposed to this document? How is this going to impact future viewings and future exhibitions? So it's a really tightly controlled process. And eventually, we will probably get to the stage where it won't be able to go to these exhibitions, and it will actually have to become a very closely guarded document that won't be able to be exposed very much. Or otherwise, it'll just be a piece of paper, like like Keeley has suggested, 
uh, with just a, a couple of signatures on it, but who will know what happened to it and how will that change the way that we view our constitution? Does that materially change our country and whether or not we are a country? It's how much do we imbue upon this this charter, upon this signed piece of paper? We should consult some legal historians immediately. But I think it, it's an interesting thing to consider, right? Like the mm-hmm. where does the metaphor and value begin and end when it comes to these legal documents. Especially when so much of our government and our our state is built around symbolism. When you think about the monarchy and the constitutional monarchy, in Canada, the Canadian crown is just a symbol. There's a person who, there's obviously the person who wears that crown, Queen Elizabeth, but in... Queen Elizabeth II. The second, thank you. Uh, But in the operations of government, it's treated as a symbol. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think any of us are saying that if it ever fades, that we won't be a, a country anymore and everybody will just be running amok and all hell will break loose. But I do think that it's interesting to consider, you know, how it would affect the mindset of Canadians or what it might do to the metaphor at large or the feeling or the unification or how it might then embody the way that we might feel as a country. We think about restoration as far as art goes like the last supper it's almost invisible it has faded off the wall but all these restorationists go in and they basically repainted the whole thing is it the same thing so you think about all of these different acts of like protection and then acts of um, conservation and repair so looking at the last supper as a painting as an artwork is it the same iconic painting now or does it now belong to the people who have repainted it? Mm. You know, so I think there's this idea of like a palimpsest or like spolia kind of where these symbols are very important, but the more that they're used and the more they're replicated or corrected, like the paint, it, that gets added to the story. And maybe it's never going to be the same. It's always going to be different. But that's how like the metaphor changes over time, too. So I don't think it. Like you said, it doesn't get rid of the thing if it changes or gets damaged or there's some sort of an alteration. It just continues the story. Another option would always be for us to create kind of a deja vu, maybe Groundhog Day type scenario. I mean, our current prime minister is Justin Trudeau. We get him to show up. We bring the queen over. We do a whole, uh, you know, mirror the event. Jean Chrétien can still be there. We'll find André Ouellette or maybe a relative of his. Put them all up on the stage. Get it done again. It's almost like you're embracing my 25-year plan, Robin, to reaffirm our documents and Absolutely. our constitution. Absolutely. I'm all behind it now. I am expecting to be CC'd on that email to your MP tonight. I will. Okay. Well, if I send him a physical letter, I'll, I'll photocopy you a version. Thank you. You're welcome. Without a doubt, the constitution has been changed forever. The stain will be there, and it will be a part of the story. It represents the protests done by Grayson and his ideology and ideals. But going forward with the document itself and how that vandalism plays a part in its story, but also in the story of document preservation more generally, we can think about how the Canadian Constitution represents Canadians and how it's fading over time and how that impacts the national psyche. Not only has the appearance of the document changed, but Grayson's protest has effectively altered how everyday Canadians interact with their archives and the documents that they want to see in person. New security measures have been put in place, and and the day-to-day operations of LAC 
could affect any future visits that you might want to take, listener. Now you're in the know. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Nick Johnston and Emily Cuggy, with audio mixing by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. For more information about the topics we covered today, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you would like to get in touch with us, email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or follow us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And never, ever destroy a document. Never.